motherfuckers don't know how to shake shit. And they're called shaking, not scared. <laughs> We're scared, not shaking this time. I'm nervous. Back to the Shaking Not Scared podcast. Here with you as always, your hosts, Eric and Bibi. Today we're going to be talking about the 2018 film Hereditary, directed by Ari Aster. Before we get into that, how are you, Bibi? I'm intimidated. Because this movie is intense and people love it? Yeah, it's a lot, but also excited to finally cover it. It's funny because I feel like this is one of those movies you don't want to watch again, but you kind of have to because you miss so much on the first watch. Yeah, if you watch this, watch it a couple times because you definitely can appreciate more of it. Oh, yeah. But other than that, how are you? I'm doing good. We're excited for Scream tomorrow. We're going to go see it opening night, so we're got to binge three and four because we actually just covered one and two recently so i don't want to watch those again we've made the mistake of binge watching a lot of television this week <laughs> up till really late so pray for us yeah my head hurts but i'm also getting a tattoo this weekend so i can't wait to share that it's gonna be a full back tattoo getting like uh altar dia de los muertos catrina type deal i haven't seen it putting full hope in my tattoo guy he's never failed you yeah he does great so what do you have for creepy content i actually watched this new documentary that just came out on shutter it's called woodlands dark and days bewitched it's a history of folk horror. It was one of those four-hour documentaries that they tend to do when they do like the history of horror. I loved it. I thought it was going to be a view of folk horror through Britain and the US, but they actually focus on like cultures all over, which is refreshing to see in these documentaries. Did they do like South America's too? Yeah, they did. La Llorona was one of the topics covered. Japan, their folklore, like not as extensive as it could be. Definitely the first two hours focus on British and American, but the last two they tried to like, I don't know, be more inclusive. That's good. But was it just La Llorona? Or? Yeah, that's kind of our biggest folklore. Is it though? Well, that people want to rip off and make movies on. Okay, because I was like, I'm pretty sure there's more to us than La Llorona. La Llorona, yeah. I was thinking like Chupacabra. That's true. I lied. That is not our biggest folklore. Cucuy. Doing this. Yeah, we have a couple. We're more interesting, okay? Than La Llorona. We have things. Creepy things. <laughs> what about you? What did you watch? We watched The Witcher season two. I want to read the books. That's why I wasn't as excited to watch it as you were, because I kind of wanted to see how the books differ, and I already immediately saw changes that I wasn't necessarily too happy with, but without giving too much away, it's kind of good so far. Just certain characters are dead already. I hate when adaptations stray way too far from the source material. We did read the first Witcher and already one of the first stories wasn't like the books. So yeah. Also interesting that the actor from Game of Thrones was the beast in the first episode. It doesn't look like No beard. He does not look like um, Gimli. No. What's was, his name? I always want to say Gimli from Lord of the Rings. Everyone's Gimli to you. <laughs> yeah. Redhead with a beard. Gimli. Tormund Giants Bane. I think was the character's name. Jon Snow's like BFF. The Wilding dude. The Wildling, yeah. Yeah, I loved him. I loved him so much, yeah. But that's all I got. What do you have for comfort content? I guess we kind of already mentioned it, but we've been staying up till like 3 a.m. to watch Naruto. Oh my god, it's getting so good. I know we're behind, guys. We get it. But I'm waiting on VV to get back to where I was. I was around like episode two something. And there's 500 in Shippuden, so we're so getting it's a there. lot of work, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I've also been shamelessly collecting Pokemon cards. I feel like a kid buying them because I'm nostalgic. almost 30 and I'm like, is this a real good use of my money i definitely saw another couple older than us in the pokemon aisle i think they were paying though <laughs> were they i'm pretty sure the husband also stopped and was looking at stuff there so you came up with the drink for today what do we have i'm kind of excited about this one i have no idea how it's gonna taste but i'm calling it the hail payment hail payment hail payment for those of you who have not seen the movie the demon in the movies named payment charlie the main character if you don't know she is allergic to nuts there is a peanut butter whiskey my thought process was peanut butter and jelly and chocolate because 
because Charlie is also eating chocolate. I think the only thing we see her eat is chocolate throughout this whole film. Fun fact. Already? Yeah. Apparently, chocolate is associated with sin and temptation. It makes sense that Payman would be eating this most of the movie because it's also chocolate cake, I think, later. Yes. I think there's a chocolate cake called Devil's Food, isn't there? I think so, yeah. That makes sense. So I use chocolate bitters. For fun, we added some edible glitter to kind of mimic the reflection and the light that's following these characters throughout the movie. And it's a shot. So are you ready for this? Yeah, let's go. Cheers. Cheers. That's really good. That does taste like peanut butter and jelly. It does. Aftertaste is heavy on the peanut butter. It tastes like more chocolate and peanut than jelly. Like a chocolate peanut butter cake. <laughs> I did not think that was going to work. I thought it was going to be nasty. No, it's good. If you like PB&J, I mean, this is the one. I love it. What do you rate it? As far as shots go, I'll give it a three. I like more sweet stuff. I'm not even a huge fan of peanut butter. So a three out of five. I love peanut butter. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. Wow. And you love it. And all you did was give it a 0.5 more. Well, because it's still sweet. It's strong. No, oh, yeah. It's, it burned. It's- it was like a double shot, wasn't it? It was because it's equal parts peanut butter whiskey. And I use pomegranate liqueur, but raspberry liqueur might give you another jelly flavor. Or what did we see at Penny's? Razzmatazz. Razzmatazz. Try this, Hail Payman, and say Hail Payman before you take it. R.I.P. Charlie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> On top of this, we wanted to share something that we actually got. Recently, we talked to Salud. They are a new hydration drink mix company. We've always talked on the show about how we like to drink electrolytes and thought we would give them a try. They have horchata flavor, jamaica flavor. They also have a lime flavor. We're going to try horchata and jamaica right now. It's supposed to have less sugar than the leading brand of these. And the artwork is super cute because it's a sugar skull. Yeah, I love it. That's actually what called my attention. Do you want to give it a shot? Yeah, and I'm over. I'm excited for horchata. I fucking love horchata. I'm nervous for the horchata flavor because it's like so easy to mess up horchata. That's true. Like when you get those at-home powder mixes. Oh yeah, those are terrible. But I am a slut for some jamaica. fucking love that shit. That's delicious. Yeah, I really like that. Actually, it doesn't even taste like it's anything but jamaica yeah i like this way better than other ones we've tried definitely gonna put in an order after that. i will definitely be buying some because we actually use them a lot when we're like feeling sick hungover or drinking podcast you know they get use in this house and for the listener in case this isn't clear we're not sponsored by them so we're not being paid to say that this is good it's actually good they just sent us this to try oh shit it actually tastes like horchata it does this i'm really so good. surprised dude i'm buying more of this i'm buying a whole packet of each i'm gonna take my words back the horchata was tastier than i thought it was going to be. Thanks, Salud, for sending us these samples. If you guys like hydration and immunity drink mixes, definitely try these. We literally swear by these helping hangovers. They really do. Drink them the night of, drink them the morning after. Honestly, just in general hydrate, but these are good. Are you ready to give me fun facts? I, I am. Tony Collette, although she might have one of the most memorable performances of this film, didn't want the role in the first place, as she doesn't even like horror and was looking to do more lighthearted films. She changed her mind once she saw the film wasn't typical of the horror genre. It's funny because she was in Krampus and yeah, I guess Krampus is a horror comedy. I think she had already been in a bunch of other films that were more like dramas, and she's like, I'm tired of crying. But she's so good <laughs> at it. Specifically thinking of one scene, the pain she shows, she's great at it. Every scene in the house was shot on a soundstage purposely to give the viewer the sense that they were looking at every scene like it's a dollhouse, which you can kind of get from the first scenes. First and last scene. I didn't know that a soundstage had that effect. I know very little about film. Yeah, you just build up each room however you want. You can take the roofs off, the walls off. It's like a 
TV show set where you could just kind of go between rooms without ah. the problem of walls being in the way. Yeah, you do kind of get that vibe. The scene where Charlie is decapitated was originally going to be more brutal with several versions of the shot that used squishy-headed puppets and blood that shot everywhere. This scene apparently was Ari Aster's favorite. More brutal? This scene's already like the most memorable of the entire movie. If you look at it closely, though, you don't really get... Here's the thing. I don't look at it closely. I do. <laughs> you don't get that full brutal effect. It's just like she hits the pole and her head's gone and that's it. But it looks like they were trying to go for some like face smashing explosion of blood situation and we didn't get that. Man, the scene is already so shocking. I can't imagine just like full on gore effect. I do like the less is more in horror. I've always said when you show the monster or the scary thing, it's less scary. This is kind of fucked up, but I wonder which one's more realistic because the way that she hits her head on the pole, it's just like an instant thud. You're imagining it's bone hitting wood. You're thinking of a neutral view of the accident. Exactly. Who would be pissed? Has he done anything else after this? Like Hereditary and Midsummer? He is currently working on another film, yeah. Hereditary is his like debut as a director. Isn't that insane? Yeah, he was only known for a couple of shorts before this. Something he had worked on like in his graduate thesis. They were featured in a couple of film festivals that got him started. Damn. What's it like to be this creative? (laughs) I also saw that this is kind of inspired by something that happened to him when he was younger. That his family had apparently gone through a series of tragedies for a couple of years. He almost felt like someone had put a curse on them. He doesn't ever really say what that was, but he's like, without selling my family out and what we experienced, I kind of felt like I put some of that into this movie. Yikes. Alex Wolf offered to actually slam his face into a desk for the scene in class, but Ari Aster refused to let him. They used a prop desk that had a softer texture, but Wolf recalls the slamming still hurt. He also offered to throw himself out the window. He apparently was method acting for this, so that could have something to do with it. Man, it's so funny because I know Alex Wolf. I don't know if you saw the show on Nickelodeon, the Naked Brothers Band. Yeah. He's that little kid. For him to like be in this super dark horror, it was like, whoa, I saw you be like a little kid actor and now you're like this serious, terrifying actor. Smashing your face in a desk. Yeah. He does a really good job in this. Melee Shapiro, who plays Charlie, actually isn't Charlie. What? She plays Paymon. According to Aster, she was Paymon from the start. I did gather that on our third watch, second watch, on like that second viewing you're like oh she's been a demon the whole freaking time (laughs) (laughs) i didn't catch that at all she still seems like a kid but she doesn't though the way she talks is very not kid like Mm. yeah are you ready for this speed run no i didn't prepare at all one two three go okay so we open on the funeral of the matriarch of the family the grandmother um I'm like freaking out. I can't even think of anything. Basically, uh, Annie doesn't have a great relationship with her mother and it shows in the way she treats her kids. Right after the death of the grandmother, Charlie's in an accident caused by Peter and she is decapitated. Throughout the film, Annie's just kind of grieving, finding ways to reach out to her child and unknowingly kind of invites the demon payment back into their home through a seance. Uh, The demon starts torturing Annie and Peter until eventually he possesses Peter I've missed so much already in the plot. He possesses Peter because Annie is just like so hell bent and figuring out what's going on. And she becomes possessed herself, accidentally killing her husband. And then in the final scenes, we get her chasing Peter around the house until he kills himself, jumping out of a window. And Payman is able to enter his body. And then there's like this whole ritual at the end in the treehouse where they like worship him and explain what's going on. <laughs> you did miss so much. You were so two seconds much. off of a minute. <laughs> that was so stressful. I kept blanking out because it was like... You were making the Tony Collette face. I was. <laughs> there's like so much that I, you just can't even get into. Just imagine Vivi making the face that Tony Collette makes when she stares at Steve Gebburned. <laughs> no, I, 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 I felt it. The time. <laughs> 
<laughs> the panic. I'm sweating. Do you want to give a brief? I can. It's going to be like the shortest brief ever on this very long movie. A grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. I hate you. <laughs> Who thinks this is okay? Enough. I mean, honestly, you could say that about any movie. We were recently on the Flyover State of Fear podcast, and Joe was saying the same thing, that these overviews are often hit or miss. You might as well have said, happy family. Until they're not. <laughs> I'm ready to dive into this. Are you so ready? Theory. I am so ready. One thing I want to point out right beforehand, the guy who plays Steve, I knew he looked familiar. He is Gabriel Byrne. He is from Stigmata and End of Days. And I remember him so vividly from the movie End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger because he crucifies Arnold, I think. I mean, I watched this movie when I was a kid, but I remember he plays the man, but he's basically like Satan. As a kid, I remember he said dreams about this man. I've never seen this movie. We should watch it. I don't even know if it's a horror, but imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger in like an exorcism type movie. Oh, fuck. Yeah. He like pisses on a car, I think. This is from memory, so if, if I'm wrong... <laughs> tell me as a listener but i think he like pees on a car and his piss is like gasoline and he kills some dude with his exploding pee it's crazy that sounds like a comedy horror almost <laughs> no it's serious it definitely takes itself serious Imagine... dude you gotta drink more water i don't know what to tell you <laughs> he's related to bennett tramer <laughs> oh yeah gasoline fluids just coming, coming out, out of them, of them. <laughs> ready yes so the first scene we get of this movie is a title card that is the obituary of the matriarch of the family ellen lay the obituary reads she is survived by her daughter her two grandchildren and her daughter's husband her husband and son have passed away many years ago the first visual scene we get is a pan over annie's workshop there are miniatures everywhere throughout the house and we zoom into one of the miniatures that ends up being peter's room so apparently these dollhouses miniatures are really loaded and thematic throughout the whole film. It's evident that they're Annie's way of processing things. The film is shot to make you feel like it's in a dollhouse. I saw that this was because the characters are essentially pawns and don't exactly have control over themselves throughout the whole movie. Steve, the father, is going around collecting everyone for the grandmother's funeral. We find out their mom's already waiting in the car and he's going to wake Peter. He goes to look for Charlie and finds her in this huge treehouse. I was thinking about how big this place could possibly possibly be because when they show her in the beginning it looks tiny she's just got enough space to crawl around has the space heaters but spoiler alert there's an entire cult inside of this place at Later the end on. of the film that's true outside it looks huge structurally i don't know how it's standing it's like on two trees it's on like two twigs <laughs> yeah. but steve goes to look for charlie in this tree house finds her there and is upset saying why did you sleep here last night you are going to catch pneumonia and this is one of those instances where i say that charlie does not talk like a child because she just tells her father in a very like stern voice like that's okay it doesn't matter i just thought that it was because she was upset that her one grandma's gone but also she looks like she's approaching teenage years i thought it was just that that she's just angsty more awkward yeah so they're at the funeral you start to notice kind of weird things happening there charlie is starting to notice that there are people there who she's never seen before annie even points it out in her eulogy and is like apparently my mom had this whole secret life that i didn't know she had secret rituals charlie also sees a lady anoint some oil on her dead grandmother's mouth. Super weird. This is a super creepy dude in the corner. Tell me that these people don't look like titans from Attack on Titan when they're naked. They're just really awkward and I'm waiting for them to run at me with their hands flailing. But Annie continues her eulogy. When this eulogy ends, you get the sense that Annie doesn't even feel like she knew her mother at all. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this. Little details just to point out here. Annie and her mother are wearing the same necklace, which we find out later is the symbol for payment. There is a scene where while Charlie's observing everyone 
someone being weird at this funeral. She pulls out a bar of chocolate and starts eating it. Annie's like, that doesn't have nuts, right? We don't have the EpiPen. Is this a reasonable ask, though, of your kid? If you assume that she brought the chocolate by herself, it's like if I asked, because your brother's allergic, it's like if I asked him and I saw him eating a chocolate bar, I'd be like, yo, you sure that doesn't have nuts in it? I'd assume that he would have noticed himself because it's this fatal. So yes and no. One, my brother is not this deathly allergic, thank God, that we know of to peanuts. When my brother was younger and in school, people would give out candy. It depends on how allergic you are to. So once he did eat a chocolate that had peanuts in it, and then my mom was cold. Luckily, he takes Benadryl and he tends to be okay. My brother is 18 years old and the other day someone made mole. Mole usually has peanuts and he ate it. So he didn't know. It's not always super obvious, but, but later he, on. But did he bring the mole with him in his pocket? <laughs> he did. <no. laughs> okay, yeah, I get your point there. You would assume that Charlie would know enough not to buy peanuts. Clearly, this is just there to say Charlie's allergic. Very allergic. I, I know I'm shitting on it, but. <laughs> There's hard things to make fun of in this film. It's another one of those tragic films that we just got to make fun of stupid stuff. Charlie also has like a nervous tick where she clicks her tongue. Obviously hates Annie. When she's giving the eulogy, she's drawing Annie like she's a monster. This is a weird movie to watch as someone who has also lost a parent or someone in general because Annie gets home and is like, should I feel more sad? And I know exactly what she means. I brought up to you when my dad had passed that funerals kind of become like a reunion for some people. And unless you're the person affected, the other people who arrive sometimes make you feel like you're there to entertain versus grieve what's happening. I understand her because at the time I also felt like I didn't even have the chance to be sad because I was dealing with so many people. This is not to say I'm ungrateful. It's just to say that you are so distracted by so many other things that you haven't even sat down to think about it. I think there's an old saying that nothing brings people together more than weddings and funerals. I can't imagine. I wouldn't want to deal with people at all during these moments. No, honestly, just tell everyone to go home and stop putting oil in my mouth. <laughs> Ew. To Steve's credit, because he is a psychiatrist, I believe, he tells Annie she should feel however she wants to feel during this grieving process. And this is where we get her creating a miniature. She has obviously been commissioned to do some work for a gallery, but she is putting together a miniature of her mother in hospice. Steve is going around and doing his job to check in with everyone in the family. Checks in on Peter. Peter says he's doing kind of meh. We find out later that the grandmother wasn't even that close to the family until her final days. Annie's probably the one mostly affected. And Charlie, who is very close to her grandmother. Annie has a seven-month deadline, which ends up becoming a burden to Annie because she can't really focus on her project. When Annie goes to check on Charlie, Charlie's standoffish and she's like, I miss my grandmother. Annie's like, you know that you were her favorite, right? I've never seen you cry, even when you were a baby. And she comments, yeah, well, grandma always wanted me to be a boy. These are little hints that Charlie was never Charlie. Charlie was born payment. If she's payment, why would she even care about her grandma? If you're payment, you want a male host. You wanted to be a boy. But if you're payment, doesn't grandma serve you? It seems like the grandmother has married payment in some kind of weird ritual. And that's why she's queen lay? Yeah. Ah, That makes a little more sense, but that's kind of weird either way. (laughs) It is very odd. A lot of this is very odd. While Annie is talking to Charlie, we notice it zooms in on some writing in the wallpaper. We assume they're conjuring or chant words that come into play later because everyone in this house has one in their room. Annie even later puts this one specifically in her model. I think it says Satania. Satoni, which sounds like Satan-y. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to read depending on how bright your screen is. Oh my god, and that's the thing about watching this film. You have to watch it in the dark or you miss a lot. Oh yeah, you can see a foot here or an arm there or a head. Which is coming up right after this one. Annie is going through her mother's things, goes through a couple photo albums and finds a book on spiritualism with a note in it from her mother that reads, my dearest daughter, please forgive me for the things I could not tell you. Don't hate me and don't despair for your losses. It'll be worth it. Our 
sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. You don't know what the hell this means. Annie doesn't know what this means. She kind of puts down the book upset. But she then goes to turn off the light and looks over the room again. We see the figure of her mother standing in the corner. She wasn't decapitated yet, right? No. Spoiler alert. Was she alive? Someone just propped her up? No. I, and when I, she I, turned I, the light off, the body just dropped and fell? That'd be very obvious. I think you'd hear a noise <laughs> of a body dropping. I feel like it is her spirit. It's right after the funeral. We're led to believe her spirit's still lingering in the house, open to interpretation. Yeah, this movie, until you've watched it all the way through and then watched it for a second time, it can be a different kind of film. Because I thought this was like a haunting film. Especially with the dollhouses at play, I thought it's going to be like one of those horror movies where someone's fucking with the dollhouse. Later, Annie's moving her mom throughout the house. And I'm like, this is what's happening. It's obviously not that. When she turns the light back on, she's like, mom, this is a natural response. You're hoping that, although it's scary. They're still there. Yeah. She looks over at one of the miniatures that she's created and just flips it over in anger. It's depicting the scene that she was talking to Charlie about earlier, where her mother wouldn't even let her feed Charlie that she's the one that had to do it. And it is a miniature of Annie trying to breastfeed Charlie and then her mother coming in to breastfeed her instead, which I had questions about. In my mind, how does this work? I know there's wet nurses back in like times of the nobles because breastfeeding was seen as like not a thing that noble people did. It's not bougie enough. It's not bougie enough. Not booby enough. It's not <laughs> I just meant like, how does her grandmother have milk to feed Charlie? It's <laughs> milk powder. It's powdered milk. <laughs> She's so old. <laughs> Just kidding. No. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I probably shouldn't have children. I don't know how breastfeeding works. She goes downstairs, though, and she tells Steve, hey, man, I saw something. And he's like, what did you see? And she's like, mm, kind of never mind. Just kind of scared myself. Charlie's in class messing with a toy. It's interesting that she's tinkering with toys, too. It's almost like her mother. She's also a creative that just figures out life through creating things. And I think if you research Payman, he's a demon that helps in all ventures that are creative. Yeah, he has the secrets of art. Interesting. That is interesting. What does that even mean? the secrets of art but anyway teacher notices tells her to stop take her quiz in that instant a bird smashes into the window your favorite everyone's spooked in the class she has no reaction charlie takes his moment to look at the scissors and you see she's up to something in the next scene you also see peter is in class they mention heracles and how he was a pawn in the oracle's premonition that basically said he had no control and is it more tragic or less tragic did you notice that they have this girl answer the question and she's like he's hopeless because like he's hopeless and like there's no hope and like the family is hopeless. <laughs> that's how I talk, actually. So all y'all hear this version of me on the show. That's not actually how I talk. We I talk, talk like, like this. this <laughs> yeah, it's funny because she articulates a very good thought in the beginning. She says it's almost more tragic because they are hopeless and they are unaware that the things they do will not have any effect on their fate. And then she's like, it's like this big ball of just hopeless things. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're hopeless. Because they're like... hopeless. <laughs> she sounds hopeless saying it. I hate when this happens to me when you're like, I know what I want to say. And then it just comes out like that we cut back to charlie at school it's recess at this point charlie finds the pigeon that has crashed into the school window and proceeds to cut its head off with scissors while eating chocolate yum while she does this and stuffs the contents into her hoodie she turns around and notices a woman across the street waving at her did you notice this was like the lady's only act throughout the whole movie when you see her naked later she does the same exact wave she's just the waving naked lady just like the guy he's the naked smiling, smiling guy. guy how do you audition for this get <laughs> naked and smile run like a titan oh you know what no you're no. kind of weird just stand stand there annie's looking up learnings on presumed apparitions for a second you think she's looking into stuff because she saw her mom but she's just putting into one of her models like a little laptop she has this crazy magnifying glass to paint all these things i wonder how much those cost probably a lot we don't have this kind of money you're not a psychiatrist i'm not a model maker clearly haven't made deals with papin it's just not working out for us no she hears steve come in goes down to greet him but notices the door to her mother's room is open as she peers in there is a giant triangle in the middle of the room it's very 
very odd because Annie doesn't say anything about it. So who knows if this was already there when her mother was in that room. Annie makes her way downstairs and asks Steve if he's been in her mother's room. He says no. The next scene is them locking it up for her to feel safer or better about it. Peter shows up, hands the phone to Steve and says, hey, it's a call from the cemetery. And he's like, what? And he's like, don't worry about it. He walks away with the phone. He's like, what do you mean desecrated? Basically finds out that someone has been messing with Annie's mom's grave. He's like, it's only been a week. Because, you know, desecration doesn't happen until like three months from now. (laughs) I think this is one of those instances where you notice Annie's and Steve relationship a little bit. It seems like he tries to shield Annie from everything. He kind of like enables her later on. Do you think it has to do with him being a psychiatrist though? Because we kind of had this question. I'm sure he's noticing things in Annie's behavior as a psychiatrist that makes him think that she's doing XYZ thing. But isn't there a conflict of interest to practice on someone who's connected to you? Yes. So there's like some fan theories that say that Annie actually used to be his patient and she went to him when her brother died. That is like super illegal. I don't think you're allowed to date your patients because then he just becomes this enabler for her and we see how that just does not work out. I don't know if that has been confirmed or denied. So Steve doesn't tell Annie about the desecration. She's kind of like, all right, well, uh, I guess I'm going to go see a movie. Going to the movies is something else. She's going to grief counseling. And I don't understand why she wouldn't tell her husband this if he is a person in the medical field. He'd probably be like, oh, that's great. You're talking to somebody about this. It's one of those sensitive things that even if it seems irrational to us, it's something that when you're going through it, sometimes things just don't make sense. Like you're embarrassed. You don't want to accept. That's true. That this is what you're experiencing. Could be a couple of things. She explains that her father died when she was a baby. He was a depressive. He would starve himself and died. Her brother was diagnosed as a schizophrenic because he would say their mother tried to put people in him, which you know now he wasn't schizophrenic. This was actually happening. She also mentions her mother suffered from DID and dementia. So we're learning that mental illness is pretty prominent within this family. She then explains that she was estranged from her mother for many years. She didn't let her go anywhere near Peter. But when Charlie was born, she felt guilty and let her have a relationship with Charlie, which she kind of regretted immediately because she got her hooks into her so fast. She says she doesn't necessarily know what she feels guilty about, but she's putting all this strain on her family and she feels like they can't handle it. The guy who's leading the clown sling is like, what do you feel blamed for? And she's like, I don't even know. And that kind of shows you how fragile this family dynamic is. She can't tell her husband that she's going to this group. She can't really talk to them about grief get the sense that something's just not super strong in their relationships. What's sad about this, though, is that the family has a fucked up relationship for the reason that grandmother has been doing things to them behind their back. There's so much that's in their background, but it's not even their fault. Apparently, this is why the film is called Hereditary. They have inherited their family's trauma. Because <laughs> I don't even know how to say you inherited your grandma's demons, literally. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's trying to put them into you. <laughs> why would her mother not tell her? Why wouldn't her mother say, hey, since you were a kid... We are doing this thing together. Because I think Annie would have like been like, hell no, get away from my kids. But she's doing it to her already as an adult. You might as well groom her too as a kid and say, hey, we're going to do this family thing. Not to say that this is okay, but she could have brainwashed Annie a long time ago instead of affecting these people without them knowing. Which is like the whole theme, right? They're unaware of their fate. They have nothing that they can do to stop it. Also, I just don't think a mom would willingly give her kids to a demon. I don't know. And it depends on what kind of mom you are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know where the riches come 
come from. Yes, because <laughs> it's obvious from this story, the mother has already tried to unsuccessfully put payment in Charles, her older brother. But it seems like the family is pretty well off. I don't know if that's because of her husband. Again, how much money do you make being a miniature creator and a psychiatrist? Enough to have this giant house in Utah, I guess? She works for this gallery that seems to be kind of prominent in some capacity. Maybe she's making a lot of money from this artwork she does. But then you chalk it up to, was there success because they did well in their careers or because Payman from the get-go with Lay's help put them on that path? Yeah, those are my questions. This transition scene, it's one of those that sometimes the scenes just do look like miniatures. It's like the outside of the house. It doesn't look real. I like it though. It's this really cool effect, like the lights got shut off and turned back on. Which does happen more and more throughout the film as events are ramping up. They're like, we don't got time to wait for night or day. At night, Peter is smoking outside his window. You realize that he smokes weed all the time and you see somebody's watching Peter. Peter gets a text basically telling him that he's invited to this party. I think the text says, bring your dick. Yeah. Which is such a like teenage boy way of speaking. (laughs) Can't leave that at home. Charlie is creating things in her room, messing with trinkets. When a light passes over her, she kind of stops, seems like she feels a little odd and goes to look at a photo of her and her grandmother. So is this light payment or what is it? Yes. This is supposed to be the spirit of payment. But if it's payment from the get-go, how does this make sense? I've heard it said that it's his influence as well. Like he is just manipulating things. Someone also pointed out in this scene, I don't remember where I saw this, but the way that the light passes through her is through her head. Uh, Sure. I don't know. Could be a reach. It's (laughs) already scary without that, but sure. (laughs) After this, the Archer Gallery is asking Annie for an update through an email. Peter asks to see if he can go to the party tonight. It's this really weird conversation between mom and son where they're both kind of making backhanded passive aggressive comments to each other. Yeah. You realize quickly that they don't have a good relationship. Kind of like avoid each other. Will they be drinking? And he's like, well, I mean, I just told you I'm not going to drink. And she's like, okay, but that's a crock. He's like, we're not old enough to get alcohol. And she's like, that's bullshit. I know teenagers can get alcohol if they want some. Are you going to drink? Yeah, Peter, you're not slick, bro. Charlie's outside barefoot, walking almost like in a trance, holding the bird head in her hand. She's following footsteps. There is a line of footsteps leading to where we later see a woman in a ring of fire on their property. Thought it was the grandma doing that. I didn't know if it was like the grandmother spirit or one of the cult members because they do just show up at this house all the time whenever they want. It was maybe Queen Lay's, you know, ritual area when she moved in. She told all her friends, come through. Communal living. There's a treehouse outside. They did us the favor. They said, it's Charlie's. It's really mine. Damn. There's not even like an accessible entrance for that. It's like just this ladder. Yeah, you just climb up. I'm just saying that it needs to be accessible and there's a lot of old folks in this cult. But they levitate up. All of them? I don't know. Annie did. They all just tighten run up the stairs? Yes. (laughs) But back in the workshop with Peter and Annie, Annie basically tells Peter he has to bring his sister if he wants to go to this party. He then goes to look for her to ask her if she wants to come. We guess that he doesn't find her in the house and goes to tell Annie because we're back outside with Charlie approaching this woman in this ring of fire when Annie yanks her away. It's like, what are you doing outside without socks, a coat, you know, typical mom stuff. And all she says is, I want grandma. And he's like, now you're mad at me and drags her back into the house. She's like, you're going with Peter to a party tonight. And she's like, "Uh, no, I'm good. She's like, no, you have no choice. You're going. That's funny because I am also the oldest and I told Yessie all the time to hang out with us. And she was like, nah, you and your friends are lame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was like Charlie. (laughs) But it's decided that they are going to go to this party together. They're driving in the desert. Peter looks pissed. It's hard to read his feelings on this. Because he's just very like, oh, fuck. 
with this very done face. He looks in the rear view mirror and just sees Charlie's head laying on the seat. Like when you look in the rear view mirror and you only see like the top of someone's body. That's a scene we get that comes into play later on. And we drive past this post that they linger on for a very long time. It's got the sigil of payment. They show up to the party and Annie is kind of just awkwardly standing behind Peter when Peter approaches this girl who he's seen in class and is like, hey, do you like weed? I have a lot of it. They're like, oh, there's a bong in the other room. He turns around at Charlie and is like, do you want to hang out here? And she's like, no, I want to go with you. He's like, look, look, they've got cake. One thing to point out at this party, there's a huge emphasis on them cutting walnuts. Aggressively. I've never seen anyone chop nuts this enthusiastically. (laughs) It's a warning sign against people who are allergic to nuts. They're just like, this is the kind of party where you eat nuts or you go home. I've also, not even in high school, but in my 20s, have been to parties. There is no food at parties. (laughs) (laughs) This is rich people parties, okay? We've never been to rich people parties. Because, you know, when you host a party, you just want to bake in the kitchen. Not in the room like the other teenagers are doing. Peter follows this girl whose name I don't think we ever learn. She enters the room and tells them, hey guys, Peter's got weed. On the laptop, I don't know if you noticed, they're watching a decapitation. I didn't. Yeah, they're watching a guillotine. Why? Foreshadowing. But, but also, why are these kids watching this? What I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, do you watch this at parties? Just people getting decapitated for fun. Mm. Isn't there better things to do? Can't you smoke this bong and just chill out for a fucking second? Goddamn. Dude, this kid's hardcore goth. It's <laughs> <laughs> watching decapitation. There's a cut to Annie working on one of her models. She's looking intently at a scene of Annie and Steve in bed and her mom in the doorway. Annie is clearly starting to work more on her own grief with her models than even the project that she was working on from the get-go. Clearly doesn't even give a shit about the gallery anymore. But as Peter is smoking with the rest of these kids, Charlie did eventually go get a piece of chocolate cake. At first, you can't really tell that anything's wrong, but as the party is going on, she is coughing, having difficulty breathing. You feel really bad. This is so scary. She eventually does go to Peter and he notices immediately that she does not feel okay. She starts to tell him that she can't breathe, that her throat feels like it's getting bigger. Peter then immediately carries her out into the car to try to drive her to the hospital. Why didn't you call an ambulance, Peter? Yeah, that was my thought watching this. I get that you're at a party with a bunch of uh, things that teenagers are not supposed to be doing, but... Decapitation videos? Yeah, that's the first one they're going to get arrested for. But the logical response is hopefully, again, I don't know how Utah is. An ambulance with an EpiPen would get to you much faster than you can get to a hospital. Hopefully. You assume he's a kid. He doesn't know. He's panicking. His sister's fucked. He's going to get yelled at by his mom. This is a thing that you probably think of as a kid. Surely enough, Charlie is wheezing and choking in the background, grasping at her neck like something is restricting her from breathing. Peter yells back, don't worry, we're going to get to a hospital ASAP. He's flooring it. He's going 80-90. In an instant, there's a deer on the road. He swerves to the right while Charlie is lowering the window and sticks her head out, trying to breathe, gasp for air, and instantly hits a pole. The car stops. It's silent. Oh man, this scene. I remember when I first saw this scene, it stuck with me for like a week. It was made even more terrifying because like I mentioned earlier, my brother is also allergic to nuts and I'm just like, carry an EpiPen at all fucking times. Oh my God. Child locked the windows. Yeah. Like my dad used to do to us all the time at (laughs) 30 years old. But Peter just sits there staring forward, both hands on the wheel, trembling. He tries to look in the rearview mirror, stops himself, looks forward. You can see tears coming down his face. He whispers, okay, you're okay. Tries to look back up at the rearview mirror, doesn't do it again. Exhales and then drives off. This scene, man, I feel like this is the scene that made this movie because up until this point, it was a pretty slow burn. We've pointed out all the little details 
going back on our second, third watch, right? But when you first watch it, you're kind of just like, okay, what's going on? What's going on? Oh, shit. What? <laughs> what the fuck? We watched this with some friends. It was like 2 a.m. They were all falling asleep, you included. When this scene happened, you guys all woke, woke up. Woke the fuck up. You forgot you were tired. <laughs> yes. That's how crazy this scene was on first watching it. To the point where when we're taking notes, I kind of don't even look up. I'm like, I don't want to see it again. Really? Yeah. It doesn't show much. Even when he's trying to look back, you as the viewer don't see what what's left of the body until later he in this state of shock just drives home not sure what to do it seems like he just goes to bed and lays there as he enters the door you can hear annie whisper to her husband oh good they're home and they're like okay go to bed yeah. my parents would have beat my ass the moment i got home whether she was dead or not they'd be like what time is it why the fuck are you barely getting home why weren't you answering my calls one time i took my little brother with me for the first time we were of age and you know he's handicapped so i brought him with to a party it was a college party but we showed back up home it was like 2 a.m my dad sermoned me for like four or five hours it was daylight out by the time we were done like <laughs> it was horrible you know you're drunk and like whatever but this would not have happened that happens here they're just kind of like asleep in the room don't even verify that both of them are intact yeah i guess it's just being latino because my mom waited up for me until i was married and out of the house she still stays up for you now probably <laughs> that being said i am gonna be this mom the one that says fucking figure it out no oh. i'm gonna be the one like where are you fuck you going to a high school party for flame so we say you thought we wouldn't notice the weed but we we did it's ours give it back <laughs> peter lies in bed but he definitely doesn't fall asleep he just has his eyes open all night we get a close-up of his face as it turns to daylight annie says that she is going to go to the store she makes her way to the car and we just hear this blood curdling scream indicating that annie has discovered charlie's body it's so eerie too while that's happening we get a flash of charlie's head on the pavement with bugs and deterioration and you thought as an audience you weren't going to see anything and they're just kind of like just kidding here it is <laughs> <laughs> Got you. Scream too. Join her. Yes. Right after you see Annie's despair, her grief, screaming and crying in her room while Steve holds her. She's on the floor yelling about how much it hurts. She's in pain. She wants to die. It hurts too much. And Peter just stands there in the hallway. I can't imagine Peter's feelings right now. I couldn't even tell you what I would feel if I accidentally killed my sibling. I feel like the theme of this film is just poor Peter because <laughs> he was truly just minding his business. I think the moment I most felt bad for Peter is later when she decides to go to the grief counseling again and he shows up on his bike from school yes. but he takes a moment to brace himself for entering the house I'm like dude that's so sad that he himself feels to blame and he can't even face his Enter own family without feeling afraid and reminded of what he did if this happened I think there would be a whole investigation I guess maybe we don't see that or is it because it's an accident an accident's an accident I, you can still get charged with accidental manslaughter in vehicles when you've hit someone under the influence he was high and he was high yeah no he definitely would have uh, probably went to jail. Who knows what the rules are in Utah? Honestly, jail would have been better than what happened to him. Someone found that head. Yeah. Or realistically, if someone had, there's gruesome to say, but like driven past there in the night, run it over. Yeah. Speculation. Up. I would say that this is probably the most realistic depiction of grief that I've ever seen in a movie. And it's in a horror movie. So many films kind of like glaze over it. Like, yeah, they're depressed three months later. No, yeah. it shows you Annie's grief. You feel her pain. The scenes after this are clearly that the funeral ensued. They're lowering Charlie's body into the grave. People are leaving this post-funeral gathering at their house. On Annie
Danny and Steve's wall, we noticed that it says Zazas, Z-A-Z-A-S. So we're starting to see more of those texts. Similar to how he acted during the first funeral, Steve goes from room to room, kind of checking in on everyone. He finds in Charlie's room the last drawing that she did, which was the decapitated pigeon with the crown on it. That night, Annie is starting to sleep in the treehouse where Charlie slept. It's lit up with a red hue, the space heaters that are set up around Charlie's treehouse. The next scene is Peter in class, tearing up, thinking about what happened. It seems he has PTSD because in the classroom, he is seeing the rear view mirror. He doesn't see Charlie's face in it this time. He is then later seen smoking with his friends. They're making fun of this dude calling his girlfriend princess. They're like, oh, what a simp, basically. And then one of the dudes is like, I wish I had a girl to call princess. <laughs> yeah. Talking shit, but you're jealous. In that moment, Peter starts to realize his throat feels like it's closing and he starts to panic. They notice and they're like, dude, are you okay? He's like, just hold my hand. He starts to scream cry. He's shown getting home, bracing himself. Annie's waiting in the car and she drives off. Do you notice that Peter never drives again? He's riding his bike. Rides his bike. Ask for rides. He's traumatized, probably thinking, I don't want to get behind a fucking wheel ever again. And kill somebody again. Never even look at a car again. Annie's driving to the grieve counseling, but she doesn't get off. She just watches it. And as she decides, you know what? Fuck no, I'm not doing this. She drives away and notices a lady standing in front of her car. She pulls over and the lady's like, wait, hold up. I've seen you. What's going on? How are you doing? And she's like, what? Yeah, your mom passed away a few months ago. I remember you. And she's like, oh, we're doing good. She kind of gets it out of her that her daughter just died. And that's why she was thinking about going. But she's like, no, I don't really want to. And Joan just throws her trauma on her immediately. And is like, my son died. I think it's her way of getting her to trust her. It's like that thing, like share trauma. You're not going through it alone. And it works. They start to share stories. And she's like, you know what? Here's my information. My name's Joan. Call me if you need anybody to talk to. She gets home. She gets up in the middle of the night. Steve stops her. Can you stop going out there? It's fucking cold. And she's like, I just want to get some rest. Because it seems like she sleeps pretty calmly out there. Yes. So anytime she sleeps in the house, she has nightmares or sleepwalks. I think I would too if that was happening to me. <laughs> if she's going to bust her shit climbing down to the treehouse and that's what's going to wake her up. That's true. It's a precaution. <laughs> Peter's in the other room and he hears a tongue click. There's someone sitting at the end of his bed and it's creepy. They're just sitting there looking away from him. I think he tries to get a better look and realizes that it's because we all do this where you're going to sleep at night and you think your like jacket hanging on the door is like a demon and then you look and it's your jacket. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a demon. And then it's a demon. This is what that scene is. <laughs> I was thinking like our demons who are all black animals and do just walk around in the dark and sometimes I'm like, oh shit. Because we just wear all black. Sometimes I see a pile of our clothes and I think it's Elvira <laughs> or Loki. Yes, this happens. Okay. <laughs> the next scene is one of the mail slot in their door. The mail is already there. Someone comes by and shoves a seance flyer on top of all of them. I don't even know what role this plays because it's not like Annie finds it and is like, oh, let me look into this. Joan is the one who forces the seance under her anyway. So I think the cult at this point is hoping that Annie is so grieved that she'll seek this out on her own. And when she doesn't is when they keep sending Joan in to kind of manipulate her into doing it. Since Ellen died, she's the one in control now. That's true. It looks like she's like her second in command. Yeah. So she doesn't have subordinates who can help her. Annie's working on her project and she's kind of done staring off blankly and notices in the distance she has a note that says call the gallery. She keeps thinking about this update that she has to give, but her mind's not all there for this. When she goes to reach for it, she drops a bottle of paint and it falls onto Joan's phone number. So when we first watched this, I asked you to rewind the scene because I also thought she knocked it over, but she's nowhere near that paint bottle and it just falls. Oh. And I think in some commentary I saw, they say that you could see Payman's light knock over the paint. I don't remember seeing that. This makes me want to go back and watch. She sees that Joan's number is on this note right after we get this shot of Annie approaching Joan's place. Immediately she notices this doormat that 
that says Joni on it, embroidered. And when Joan opens the door, Annie's like, oh, that's funny. My mom used to make ones just like that. Joan brushes this off, serves her tea, and is immediately asking her questions about her daughter. Do we know why she takes that thing out of her mouth when she drinks from the tea? Not sure. Not sure if it's ritual tea. Tea is used a lot in so many herbal folk movies, as we see later on a lot in Midsummer. They use tea as like hallucinogenics and things to like open up the spirit and body. But Annie tells, again, a heartbreaking story of how she discovered Charlie's body. She said the first thing that tipped her off was that there was a smell in the car. And when she looked over, she saw her little fingers, what was left of them, clawing at her throat, but she couldn't see her face. Like the way she tells it is insane. It is like very believable. She also says that her blood was black like tar. Was it because it was Paimon's blood? Or just because of over time it dried up? Yeah, that was my question too. I thought it was more of a dried blood looking black. But who knows? Could be demon blood. Joan then immediately asks her how her relationship with Peter is and Annie kind of stops crying immediately and becomes stoic. She tells the story about how when Peter and Charlie were younger, Annie used to sleepwalk a lot. That she woke up one night in the middle of sleepwalking, seeing her kids covered in paint thinner, herself covered in paint thinner, and what woke her up was her lighting the match. This also woke up Peter. He never trusted her after this. She says that she put it out immediately, obviously, but their relationship was ruined since then. Once Steve found out, it took me a really long time to convince them that I didn't do this on purpose, but how does anyone deal with that? The next scene is Steve cooking, and you get the sense that he's trying to have some normalcy. Peter walks in and he's like, hey, did you sign up for your SAT prep course? Like typical parent stuff that like when you're grieving, you're like, I don't give a shit. Right after Steve walks in on Annie modeling the death scene, he's like, Jesus Christ. She's like, what? What if Peter sees this? And she's like, this has nothing to do with Peter. It's a neutral view of the accident. Again, very evident that this is how Annie is just processing things that are happening in the family. Steve, however, is not here for it. He is pissed. And he's like, I made dinner. Come eat or don't. Do whatever the fuck you want. The next scene is an extremely tense and awkward dinner between the family. Annie is kind of tapping her plate with her fork, not really eating. Steve kind of tries to ask Peter a few questions about school. Peter answers kind of normal, but then it goes back to silence. Peter looks at Annie and is like, is there something you want to say? It's funny because she's acting like she's the teenager in this yeah. scene. Because she's like scoffing at things they say. He's like, yeah, it kind of just seems like you want to say something. And she's like, what would I want to say? He's like, say it. Maybe you'll feel better. And she's like, I'll feel better or you'll feel better. And he's like, whatever, just fucking say it. And this is what causes her to lose it. I'm your fucking mother. You don't raise your voice at me. Basically saying that all she gets from Peter is resentment. I slave away and all I ever get is that smirk on your face. I wish that I could save you from what you did, but you have to face it. Peter never takes responsibility. And until he can do that, she cannot forgive. She kind of sits back down to dinner and Peter very quietly goes in. Goes in for the kill. Sentence. Because <laughs> while I would say Annie's making some good points, I feel like she's also missing the mark. She also isn't accepting responsibility, which is what Peter throws in her face. He says, what about you, mom? Charlie didn't even want to go to the party. This is the scene where I would say that Steve protects Annie more than anyone else in the household. He let her have her little blow up once it gets too real for her immediately. He's like, enough, we're done. We're done. We're not doing this. I think he sees her as very fragile emotionally. That's interesting though, because I feel like later he just switches and is protecting Peter more. When he realizes how bad it is, but he's part of the reason it got to this. Yeah. I mean, if he's got the power in his profession to recognize that something is happening, I think he'd have done it long ago. And that's why I find this part where he stops this conversation interesting because I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. Maybe not with them screaming at each other, but clearly it's things they need to say to each other. One of the things she says that I thought was important is that she points out that Charlie's death was such a waste. You would have thought they would have brought them closer, but it didn't. It's an odd choice 
choice for her to say because she visibly saw Peter afraid to get into the house and she just drives off and doesn't acknowledge it. Like he clearly regrets it. He's clearly affected by this too. She's not alone. What I don't like about when people pass away is comparing one's grief over another. And this is coming firsthand, but it's easy to say, oh, well, it was my dad and not yours, my brother or my cousin or my friend, and think that you are affected more or less than someone else. Everyone else lost someone. We're all going to deal with it a different way. It kind of sucks to try to throw that into each other's faces. It's not like Peter wanted to kill Charlie. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. They're just trying to compare whose grief is worse or whose guilt is worse because they're both responsible to some extent. Steve lost someone too and Steve's not out here just throwing it in their faces. Not to say that Steve's the best example because I think he definitely needs to grieve better than he's doing, but... I think Steve's trying to like be the problem solver, the keep the peace person and is not grieving himself. We do see his like not healthy coping mechanisms because he is drinking at work, taking pills to press it down and not feel it, I believe. Interesting. And he leaves. She's upset that Peter went for the kill and she's like, fine. Steve tries to make dinner normal again and reaches over to Peter who's weeping. He kind of goes back to his plate, starts to try to cut his meal, but you can tell he's like, fuck, this is not enough. The next scene we get is Annie working. She makes a run to the store. In the parking lot on her way out, she runs into Joan. Joan is incredibly excited. So happy to see you. Oh my God, how have you been? And immediately tells her about a seance that she participated in. There was people there who were skeptics and they were changed by what they saw. What a reintroduction too. Like, hey, I haven't seen you in forever. You want to talk about how I talked to my dead grandkid at some medium's house? Right off the bat. Annie's not buying it. She's very skeptical. She's kind of laughing at the things she said. But Joan is very convincing. She's like, no, I know. I know what you're thinking. I thought the same thing. Just come with me, please. Let me show you that it's real. Annie does. The next scene is them in the house with Joan setting up a candle and a glass on the table. She asks, are you here? Annie is kind of spooked because she starts to look around like something is happening. They ask, slide the glass if you're here. They both put their hands on the glass and it moves. Annie is like, what the fuck? She looks under the table. Joan continues and is like, say yes by moving the glass right. Say no by moving the glass left. Asks a series of questions and the glass is moving continuously. Annie even feels air on her hair and is like, oh my God. I think it's funny right after this because she's like, please stop. And Joan is like, what? Yeah, she looks at her so mad, but then immediately tries to be like, I understand. I also freaked out too. She looks at her disgusted. Like, fuck do you mean? Stop. This was so much work to put together. You're being so rude. I had the whole cult here last night. Do you have any idea how hard it is to do a seance? But as Annie is trying to leave, very freaked out, Joan hands her a candle, hands her a paper with the incantations on there. Did you notice that Annie asks the same question that Steve asks later? What language even is that? And she's like, I don't know. Just read it. Just do it. She also notes, make sure that when you do it, everyone is there. It's really important, specifically, that your son is there. She does She doesn't even say Steve. She's like, your son. Make sure he's there, please. Important. Don't forget your son, though. But like, mainly your son. Who gives a shit about your husband? (laughs) Make sure your son's there. But Annie is just trying to get out of there. Joan tells her this final thought, like, you didn't kill her, Annie, which is kind of something that she needed to hear or wanted to hear, at least. When she turns around, we see Joan's head reflected by a mirror. It's just her head, basically saying that your daughter's not dead. She's not gone. She's still here. On her drive back home, Annie is visibly shaken up, and this is only made worse when she hears a tongue click in the backseat of her car. Scary. Poor Annie. The next scene is Annie at home at night. She can't sleep, and this is one of the nights that she's not in the treehouse. She starts to see ants crawling all over her bed. They lead up to a windowsill, gets up, follows them. They lead to Peter's room. It's a very shocking scene because his face is just engulfed with ants crawling in and out of his eyes, nose, mouth. Mimicking the scene we saw with Charlie's head in the road. She is 
is about to scream when Peter wakes up and asks her, what are you doing? Are you sleepwalking again? And she's like, what? No, I was just checking on you. And he's like, why are you scared of me? She confesses that she never wanted to be a mother. And she's kind of shocked by her own <laughs> confession. She just gasps. He's like, why? She's like, she pressured me. I didn't feel like a mother. And this is where we learn that Annie's mom is the one that pressured her to have children in the first place. Why? You needed sacrifices. Because she might have been part Hispanic. And just asking for grandkids every chance she gets. Honestly. But she's like, I tried to have a miscarriage. What? You tried to kill me? And she's like, no, no, I, I wanted to save you. And he's like, no, you wanted to kill me. And he starts to cry. And it's increasingly getting more intense between the two of them because they're just yelling and screaming and crying at each other. They are getting covered in paint thinner. Like it seems to be coming out of their bodies and engulfing them. When I first saw this, I thought they were just getting sweatier. I thought it was like a comedy. Or like you're nervous <laughs> and you're sweating. When he asks, why did you try to abort me? She's like, I was doing it to protect you. I feel like in her subconscious, she knew that something was wrong and giving her mother these grandchildren was like the worst thing that she could do. Yeah, with Annie being in the same house when her older brother died, she had to have seen some things that her mom was doing in secret. Yeah, some clues that she might have repressed. A match is lit and is thrown into the room. As it is engulfed in flames, Annie wakes up for real this time. And the next scene is cut to her in the bathroom by herself practicing the seance. She is waking up everyone in the house, telling them that they need to come downstairs. The way she wakes up Peter is very interesting because she gets super close to him and says, I'm sorry for everything. I love you. Please come downstairs. Cool. Good conversation, mom. Can you imagine? I already think she hates me. Why is she on top of me? Knowing that she sleepwalks, you'd be like, oh God, are you sleepwalking right now, mom? You pointed out this is one of the few movies where the parent is the one that sleepwalks and not the creepy kid. Yeah. Peter and Steve making their way downstairs. Steve is like, what the fuck is happening? Like he's very done with what's very going skeptical. on right now. And he continues to explain. They're kind of like, I don't really know what you're doing here. She's like, okay, cool. I'll bring the table to you guys then. She lights a candle on the table. She's like, I did this with a lady a couple of days ago and it worked. I know you don't believe me, but it worked. She finally convinces them to do it. They put their hand on this glass. Papers on the table and Steve's also like, what language even is that? Yeah. Annie asks for Charlie to move the glass. She asks them to concentrate on Charlie and for her to move it like she did earlier. For a while, nothing happens. And then the glass is thrown across the table. Everyone freaks out. Annie is super excited. Steve is like, what the fuck? Peter is scared. Peter mentions he can feel the air flexing. It's very interesting that Annie and Peter are the ones that can feel the shift in the room, but Steve isn't. Well, Annie explains it and says that she's a medium and maybe Peter has some of that trait in him, if that's true. And again, plays into the title of the movie of things being passed down from family. I don't think she's a medium. I think she was manipulated into doing this, but she says it kind of explains the weird things that she's been seeing for weeks now. She was asking the spirit of Charlie to draw something on her sketchbook. Obviously, the sketchbook is what she chose to link her to Charlie. They hear a crash behind them. The flame that's in the candle just blows out like a flamethrower. They just stand there staring. Annie looks like something went inside her. She closes her eyes and then starts speaking in Charlie's voice. It's really creepy. <laughs> it's a weird like double voice demon thing. What's going on? Where am I? Why is Peter scared? What's happening? Where's mom? Peter is freaking the fuck out. Steve, doing some quick thinking, just throws water over Annie and it seems to help. Annie snaps out of it and she stares at Peter and Peter is crying his eyes out. Being comforted by Steve and he is just done. I don't know how he could see this as a psychotic break though because clearly Stuff he saw happened. all these things. He also checked under the table. <laughs> yeah. The next thing we get is their bedroom I think and it says lift to pandemonium on the wall. Maybe these are like steps in the ritual. Pandemonium yeah. being chaos. I don't know if you ever heard of when you play Ouija allegedly one of the most common things that is spelled out is Zaza that was used to inspire then Pazuzu the demon. I didn't know that. Yeah. I listened to an episode on the history of Ouija and it's interesting because the use of Ouija is like correlated with great loss. So like during plagues, wars is when their popularity spiked. 
Yikes. People were trying to conjure up They're dead loved ones. Dead loved ones. So sad. <laughs> yeah. And Pazuzu was what? Just like a combination of letters that would come up often? Often. So and the... then it became like the lore that that's the demon that you conjure. Oh. Well, that's kind of less believable now. I thought Pazuzu was a cool name and now I'm like, oh, it was just an accident. Mm. I could be wrong. It makes sense though. That night, Peter is just in his room, freaked out from what happened. We get an image of someone standing in the background of his room again and they don't notice. This is one of those moments where I would say you have to have your brightness up, lights off because you miss a lot of the people inside the home if you're not looking for them. Yeah. Peter's in class and sees the Paimon light flash. He sees his reflection smiling at him. So fucking creepy. I think I would scream instantly. He kind of does because here's the click. This is what snaps him out of it. And he's like, I gotta go to the bathroom. Apparently he has called his dad just completely convinced that something is after him after the seance and he would be right. The next scene is Steve calling Annie at home telling her that Peter has called him in hysterics and this is interesting. From this point on anytime Peter is referred to Annie goes, Charlie? She does that in this phone call and he's like, what? No, Peter. He says, I have a son to protect and you need to stop doing the stuff that's freaking him out. I guess as a psychiatrist he's starting to realize I need to do something about this. Too late. Yes. He hangs up on Annie at the end of that call and Annie's like, don't you ever hang up on me? And she's pissed. Don't hang up on me again. I'm not sleepwalking anymore. Like that was <laughs> like the main argument happening here. She gets a call from the gallery right after Annie blows the fuck up. She snaps. She's holding a chair, literally a little chair, breaks it and goes in on the models. The next scene is Steve getting home from picking Peter up. He walks upstairs. He's like, what's that smell? Walks in on Annie, just sitting there stoic. Everything in the shop is destroyed. He's like, what the fuck happened here? And she says she just got sick of looking at it. Steve's like, I don't have time to dissect this right now. <laughs> he decides to sleep on the sofa. Yeah. Taking a bunch of pills and his nightcap and just going to sleep. We see a final miniature that I asked you about. I couldn't tell who it was, but it's another decapitated miniature in a bed. I didn't know if it was meant to be Peter or Charlie. If you know, please tweet us. Couldn't figure this one out. Yeah. Annie suddenly starts to hear scribbling and finds the book in Charlie's room, drawing the face of Peter over and over. With its eyes gouged out. Peter sees Charlie in the corner of his room in the middle of the night. Her head just droops down, rolls out of the shadows, and turns into a ball. We also hear another tongue click. Their dog, which we haven't really touched on this entire time, is at the door growling and barking in his direction. And Peter's like, what the heck are you growling at? Immediately some hands come out from behind his bed. His bed's against the wall, so his argument against Annie after this, it doesn't, doesn't really make, make sense. sense. But the hands are coming out of behind the wall and start to choke him. And he starts to panic and scream. And Annie runs in and is like, what the heck's going on? The hands stop doing this in the moment that Annie walks in. But Peter's like, you tried to choke me. You're trying to kill me. Try to rip my head off. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, you came up from behind my bed and you tried to kill me. It's like, dude, that doesn't even make sense. She's like, I came in here because I heard you screaming. But she basically says she understands what's going on and she's going to take care of it. She's not going to let anything happen to him. She's like, don't tell your dad, but I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to fix this. Don't tell your dad because he's probably going to believe you. Yeah, not a good look. She then runs downstairs with Charlie's sketchbook. She throws the book in the fire. Her arm lights up slowly as the book starts to catch fire on an edge. She's just standing there with the fire on her arm until she realizes, oh, fuck, I need to put this out. She starts trying to put it out on her arm, notices that it's not working. She pulls the book out of the fire, starts to boot it down, and the fire on her arm disappears. And it's evident after this seance, whatever she invited in is now connected to her and connected to this sketchbook. To Annie, this is the classic, I conjured up something I didn't know what I was messing with. Now I need to fix it. She's following horror movie rules. She tries to go back to Joan's place to fix it, but as she's knocking on Joan's door, the camera zooms out away from the door. The sigil of Paimon is all over this apartment. Something you didn't really see in the scenes before this. It's like a secret room of demon worship in her house. You see a table covered in relics. A lot of the things that Charlie had earlier, that toy that's on the table is the same exact one that Charlie had. There's also a picture of Peter on the table and candles all 
all over. Speaking of Peter, we jump to him at school in the courtyard eating lunch. He's sitting by himself and across the street, Joan is screaming at him. He's the only one who can hear it too because he's looking around like, doesn't no one else notice this lady just screaming at me from across the parking lot? And apparently they don't. Joan is yelling, I expel you, Peter. Get out. I expel you. Back home, Annie is going through her mom's stuff again. She realizes that there's a book that says invocations and it has a bookmarked page with King Paimon. The gist of the excerpt about King Paimon basically says that Paimon possesses the most vulnerable host, in this case, possibly Peter, possibly Annie. I think we kind of disagreed on who at this point. When the ritual is complete, Paimon's locked into the ordained host. Once locked in, a new ritual is required to unlock the possession. He covets a male body. It also says his hosts have varied in the past. Apparently this was Ari Aster's addition to the character. Okay, so it wasn't that he always has to be male. Right, because there is a note in the book that says he has the face of a woman. The whole coveting a male thing was his creative addition to it. Okay. The drawing of Paimon is also interesting. He is wearing a crown. In parentheses, it says God of Mischief. He's Loki. He's Loki. And he's carrying three heads. We disagreed on who is the most vulnerable at this point in the story because I said the most vulnerable right now is Annie. Paimon is using Annie to then make Peter more vulnerable in order to possess his body. I just thought Peter was the most vulnerable because he's clearly being the most affected physically by what's happening. He's getting the ear clicks, seeing his own reflection smile back at him. He keeps seeing this light. So I thought that's why Peter was the affected. There's like some meaning to this excerpt that says unlocking and locking the ritual between the hosts. Yes, which we took to mean once he is in a host and locked in there, the way that he is released is through decapitation, which we see a few times. In order to correct his female form, they had to decapitate Charlie. Once Charlie is no longer there, Annie starts to become more vulnerable and is the one possessed by Payman because she then decapitates herself and that is when Payman is finally able to enter Peter. Gotcha. Then Peter is now the most vulnerable. Yes, and he can only enter when they're at their most vulnerable. So for Annie in the scene we'll see next, that is when her husband dies. We also get photos that Annie never saw before. There is photos of Joan clearly being a friend of her mother's, photos of her mother in a wedding dress in this weird ritual looking thing where coins are being thrown at her. The final photo is actually a family photo of Annie, Charlie, Peter, and Steve. Looks like they're on vacation or something. And the photo underneath it, it's clear that the photo has been blown up and put into this ritual party because they're all praying. So fucking creepy. Can you imagine seeing this as a parent? Taking these like photos that are clearly just for fun with you and your family and they're being used somewhere else by people that you don't even know. By your mom being one of them? Worshipped? Yeah. Oh man. Fucking unsettling. Peter back at school sees the light leading to a room at school. At the same time, Steve is writing an email back home to his colleague psychiatrist. He gets an email from the cemetery with pictures of the dug up grave. It's pretty bad. It's like very dug up. Hell yeah. It's like someone <laughs> brought a bulldozer. It took is. Out. It's not subtle. No. Annie is walking around with this photo album. Clearly she plans to show Steve when he gets home. I'm guessing the smell is what finally attracts her to the attic. As she opens the door, a shit ton of bugs come out. Always a good sign. I would have stopped at that point. I would have been like, nope. I'm going to wait for my husband to come back home because I'm not going up there. <laughs> she climbs up the stairs to the attic. She notices there is a body in the corner with a small candle between its legs. She goes over to look at it and it's a decapitated body. Above it, there's the sigil of Paimon in blood. The body is also like blackened, clearly decaying, and Annie just turns around to throw up. She presumably leaves the entire house. We see her standing outside in the rain near the treehouse. It's like she doesn't want to go back into the house with the body. At this point, Peter's in class and he hears the clicking of the tongue. His hand immediately goes up in this contorted fashion. The teacher is like, Peter, do you have a question? And they all look at Peter and they're like, wait, Peter, are you okay? Peter's face 
face is twisted in a way that the right side of his face is lifted up. He looks frozen. He looks like he can't even breathe, choking and gurgling. And his douchebag friend's like, Peter, what are you doing, man? <laughs> fucking embarrassing me. His face smashes the fucking table once sideways. His face goes back up. Everyone's like, what the fuck? Because he's bleeding. In an instant, his face just goes down face first and he starts screaming, flailing out of his chair, hits the desk. It's really blood curdling and Peter looks distraught. This kid, Alex Wolf, did so good in this scene. Yeah, he did pretty great too in this movie. We were pointing out some of the kids in the background though because we paused it when he's freaking out. Zoom out on the class and you can see everyone just looking in shock. And there's this one kid in front who's like super unimpressed. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> what is all this? Just wanted to let all the listeners know that Eric had his hand up the entire time that he was describing <laughs> that scene. Did I? Yes. <laughs> contorted steve is picking up peter from school he's all bandaged up his nose is at least he is in the car and he is looking back at peter again mimicking the scene that we've seen a couple times now where someone looks in the rear view mirror to see the person behind them and just sees their head this is the moment too where we see steve kind of release himself he's at a red light and he just starts crying at the steering wheel annie approaches the truck as he's arriving she's like who did this to him and when he's like himself apparently he's like grab his legs and she does like she waits a little bit they at least get him into bed first. Annie finally shows Steve, you need to go to the attic. I need to show you what I found. My mom's dead body's up there. And he's like, of course. Yeah. Of course your mom's dead body's up there. And she's like, you have to see what else I found. And he's like, oh, what? Because there's more things up there's there with more. your mom's dead body. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah. He finally decides to fucking do it. He opens the door. The flies come out. And he's like, oh, what the hell? He climbs up. Annie goes and starts kind of stoking the fire, puts some paper in there because she wants to burn the book. You hear Steve in the background go, oh, <laughs> just screams. This is so funny because i was expecting like the classic trope in horror movies where he goes to check and there's nothing there that's what i meant about him being a throwaway character that's exactly what you expect but the fact that he sees it immediately you're like oh shit this is different this is real this is actually happening to all of them oh his scream is funny he makes his way downstairs to meet annie but he immediately starts accusing her he's like you did this while you were lying about going to the movies i was trying to protect you from whoever desecrated your mom's grave but it was you the whole time annie in a desperate plea is like no you have to listen to me it's the longest plea she's begging for a long time please 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 steve's not saying a word he's literally just there listening to annie essentially she's telling him that she believes peter is in danger and the only way to solve this is to burn the book because she unknowingly brought something into the house that's gonna harm peter this much she's sure of the only way to fix it is to sacrifice herself with the book she's like i can't do it myself you need to help me save our family she douses the sketchbook in paint thinner and in this very sad moment very honest she says you are the love of my life go kill me basically <laughs> yeah i mean she's saying her goodbyes he goes in the direction of the fireplace he turns around looks at her and he's like i can't do this anymore it's not helpful you realize in this moment that steve's putting on the psychiatrist hat you need to get help i need to call the cops and he runs at him grabs the book and just throws the book in the fire steve bursts in the flames <laughs> so unexpected you're so ready for annie to be the one that bursts into flames annie stares and in a face of shock just goes catatonic and i think it was like one of those beautifully timed moments because you could tell she was about to like scream her head off but in that moment the light passes over her and she's in a trance this is when shit just goes from crazy to crazier to crazier <laughs> calmly though calmly i don't know if i would say calmly we're in peter's room he's obviously in pain because he just woke up from having been bandaged up he sees the light on in the treehouse looks around annie is in the top right corner of the screen hanging from the ceiling zooms in on peter and when he turns to the right she looks like she's swimming away out the 
door of his bedroom. Silently. <laughs> it's funny. It's like a Spider-Man crawl, but looks more like she's swimming. She's doggy paddling. It, it was terrifying though. When I first saw this, I was like, no, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> he walks out of his room. He hears a bang. He goes around closing doors. He's clearly scared. He makes his way downstairs, sees his dad's dead charred body. He sees the ring on the finger. And in the background, again, you see Annie's character on the ceiling, just waiting. Just hanging from there. He kind of doesn't have time to react because he immediately hears the creak of wood behind him. It's the smiling, creepy Titan guy from the funeral. Only he is in the home, creepily smiling and completely naked. Disgusting. Just not saying anything in your home. Peter doesn't have time to process this because he hears another sound coming from directly in front of him. Annie runs out of the shadows. She chases him up into the attic. He closed the door behind him and is yelling, Mommy, please, I'm sorry. Mommy, stop doing this. What are you doing? You're scaring me. Dude, Annie's form banging her head on that door is so creepy. She's smashing it over and over and over and over and over and over so fast. It is a terrifying scene. Everything from here on out is a terrifying scene. (laughs) Peter has locked the door and kind of stands up in the attic, not noticing that there is a woman standing behind him, naked as well. Pans around the room and sees a ton of candles. He finally settles on the corner where his grandmother was, and instead there is a photo of him with his eyes gouged out. He hears a very strange noise coming from above him. We assume that the people let Annie in. She has maybe like wire and is cutting her neck with both hands slowly. And she is deadpan. She is going faster and faster and faster. And the sound is what you hear more than like any soundtrack. It's gritty. It's... And she speeds up. Peter looks down and sees three naked people just standing there. One of them is that lady from earlier just waving. Just waving. And he's like, ah! And just throws himself out the window. Sallies himself out the window. Good thinking. Anytime anyone throws themselves out a window like this, it's performing a sally. While Peter is lying there on the ground, the sawing that Annie is doing has finally stopped. And we just hear a thud, which is her head rolling on the floor. I saw somewhere that if you watch the scene closely, you could see this shadow, this dark shadow leave peter's body and it's interpreted as his soul leaving his body he died but what we see is the light of payment slowly floating down and entering peter's body peter lifts his head notices annie's body levitates towards the treehouse as he stares blankly a tongue click happens so we know it's charlie peter walks towards the treehouse as he walks there the music kicks in this iconic hereditary music (laughs) he notices these people naked standing in the tree line climbs up the stairs of the treehouse it's very artistic strangely beautiful for something very disturbing. He enters the treehouse and what he sees is a bunch of people naked bowing down. We don't really see their faces. Looking more closely around the room, he sees a statue with Charlie's head on it. And a crown. So ugly and disgusting. It is a sight to see. Right in front of that mannequin are the bodies of his grandmother and his mother. And I thought it was interesting because they're the only ones facing the Charlie mannequin while everyone is facing him. Again, you could say notions of their bloodline, whatever you want to call it. He pans around the room once more and notices a picture of his grandmother saying Queen Lay. As Charlie stares, Joan's in the background and grabs the crown, puts it on Charlie. Joan continues to speak and says, you are Payman, one of the eight kings of hell. We've corrected your first female body and given you a healthy male host. We reject the Trinity. We pray directly to you. Give us knowledge of all secrets, honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will. As we have bound ourselves to you. Hail Payman. 
payment. Hail payment. Hail payment. Where's my payment? We're supposed to get riches. Yeah. The last shot looks like another miniature created by Annie. It is just Peter standing in the middle of all this praise. And that is it. I also noticed on the second or third watch, the film starts with a miniature of Peter's room and ends with a miniature with Peter in it. Oh yeah. That's a cool effect. Man, I can't believe we made it to the end here. So before I knew that Charlie was payment, I thought, what would a 13 year old be in this body thinking? Like, I didn't ask for this. <laughs> I didn't want any of this, thanks. But no, I think you are meant to interpret that Charlie has never been Charlie. I want to know what comes next. That's what I was thinking. How do you explain away all the death around you? Literally, you accidentally killed your sister. Your dad is charred to a crisp in your living room. Your mom is now also decapitated. Like, how do you explain this? Is the point to the viewer's discretion to say that after this, the world was taken over by payment and his people? I don't know because he is one of the eight kings of hell. So who knows how much power he possesses because then Charlie has no expression at all while being worshipped or looking at the things going on around him. Because he didn't ask for this. <laughs> He's like, I was having a grand old time being a king in hell. Now you brought me to earth, made me human. What the fuck? Now I got to give you riches. Fuck. What did you think? Oh my God. Is this film so much? You have to watch it multiple times to understand some of the things that are going on here. Even when you do, you might not understand everything that's going on here. It's just a horror movie unlike any other I had seen. You think you know, right? You think it's going to follow the tropes. You think it's going to be a haunting movie, and it is not. I love this movie. I don't think I would watch it a million more times, but I do like Ari Aster's work so far. You'll hear about it more because we're going to talk Midsummer next week, but yeah, I just loved it. What did you think? I do appreciate it more now that I've seen it several other times. The themes in the background, the tragedy, things that I related to, I think that in different ways, whether you've experienced it yourself or even put yourself in the character's shoes, it fucks with you mentally. Like, what would I do. So I like it too. Midsummer, can't wait to talk about it, but I've seen that movie too many times. Yeah. Spoiler alert for next week. I definitely like that film more than Eric likes that film. I think I like this one more than Midsummer. I would say I like this one more just because it messes with you more. So yeah. what would you rate it? I would rate this 8.5. What about you? I'm going to give it a 10 because it scared the shit out of me when I first watched it. <laughs> I'm telling you, that scene of Charlie stuck with me for a week. Like, I watched it through my fingers when... You did. I when Annie that. cuts off her own head. I was like... <laughs> you missed, like, the whole last 30 minutes of that movie because you were watching it with your hands up on your face. Exactly. That's that. what I mean. I have to watch it again because <laughs> I missed a lot watching through my fingers. I think you got up for the bathroom, too, and watched from the corner. And I was like, is it safe to come in the room? <laughs> <laughs> I know you like horror, but I remember seeing you and being like wait so you are a scaredy cat well that's what i mean that's the first time a film has made me feel that afraid in a really really long time <laughs> for me it's a 10 awesome just on scare factor alone so as emotionally traumatic as that was do you think loki felt the same way yes because he got really scared when he heard annie screaming he did he was like oh no i don't like that you want to tell us about it loki Sounds good. We're going to keep watching depressing movies. I'm sorry. We hope you don't have to wail in tragedy like that anytime soon. To be fair, he thinks Elvira living here is a tragedy. He really does. You could definitely tell his demeanor is a little sadder now that she's here. <laughs> He's not the baby anymore. He's disappointed in us. Yeah. I hope he doesn't get depressed when we bring more animals into the house, which mm. we will. Then he's really going to be questioning our sanity. <laughs> He'll be like, stop bringing things into this house. Did King Paimon make you do this? <laughs> Something's happening because it's not natural. It's funny when we go to our parents and he's much happier because 
because Elvira's not there. Yeah, it's weird. The things that dogs pick up on, it's so funny. But is that pretty much it for us here? Yeah, I'm ready to go watch Scream 3 and 4. Let's do it. As always, we hope you guys had a good time here with us. You can follow us pretty much anywhere at ShakenNotScaredPod, except Twitter. Twitter is ShakenScaredPod. You can send us an email at ShakenNotScaredPod at gmail.com. Support the show on Patreon. You can get early access to episodes or a bonus episode and theme drink idea every month. We currently have a poll to pick January's bonus episodes. So if you want to have a say in which one we do, go sign up for our Patreon. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a follow. Check out our drink videos. Make sure to like them. Rate, review, all that good stuff. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.